You're listening to Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Here, we'll chat about all things marriage, motherhood, and modern home economics in all honesty. I'm your host, Maurice Young. Thank you so much, Eve, for being a guest today on Young Honest Mother, the podcast. Marissa, I'm so happy to be here because um, I was just listening to some of your episodes and I love your message. Thank you. So to start, who is Eve? It's a great question. Um, well, I'm thinking, is it Eve in a pandemic? Is it Eve living um, her best life in her unicorn space, which is a term from Fair Play about being interested in our own lives? Is it Eve as a mother? Um But I guess what I'd say to that question is for a long time, I looked at myself as lots of roles Mm -hmm. as mother and daughter and sister and wife. And um, since I've been on my book tour and I wrote uh, Fair Play, I've been really living as Eve, um, the woman, uh, the person who's obsessed with gender justice and social justice and trying to make the world just a little bit better place um, than where I left it. And that's who I am today. Mm, Thank you for sharing that. I am interested in your journey. Like, what was it like to kind of let go of being associated by just these roles, these titles? And and how did you finally step into the Eve that you mentioned who is really trying to figure out how to give back to the world in the biggest way possible? It's a great question. Um, I used to think about that a lot when I would see sort of these sort of what I thought were shaming messages to young mothers when I had my kids and they were really little about eight years ago, you know, find your passion and your purpose. And I kept thinking, you know, I can barely hold on, uh, you know, to a a mental grocery list in my head. How am I going to do any of that? stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, I write in fair play, but my journey to Eve, the real Eve, not just the role Eve, um, started with um, a text my husband sent me that just said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. Mm, Seemingly innocuous, but... (laughs) Yes, um, seemingly innocuous or innocuous enough um, on another ordinary day. But this day, eight years ago, it sort of changed my life in a lot of ways. You know, these terrible days or days where you're really sad or, you know, you don't ever know how things are going to be transformative. But um, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries day was a day. And Marissa, you can uh, sort of picture the scene. I had a diaper bag and a breast pump mm-hmm. on the passenger seat of my car. I had to return for a newborn baby in the backseat of my car. I'm really privileged to have those gifts, but they were there to return. They were the wrong size. Um, I recently left the corporate workforce because there was no flexibility and I made less money than my husband. So I thought it was my job to leave that workforce and start my own business. I'm a lawyer by trade. So I, and I started my own firm and I had a client contract on my lap with a pen that was sort of stabbing me in the vagina (laughs) as I was racing to pick up Zach, um, my older son, who was three at the time from his toddler transition program, which in America lasts like, you know one minute because we don't value working families. And, um, and that's when the text came in. So I just, I had to pull over to the side of the road and I just, just started crying. I started crying, thinking to myself, you know, this is definitely not the career in marriage combo I thought I was going to have. Um, and more importantly, uh, you know, I can't even manage a grocery list, <laughs> obviously, but more importantly, really, you know, how did I become the default? or as I call in fair play, the she fault mm-hmm. for 
all my household and domestic tasks for my family. Marissa was not supposed to happen to me. I'm a product of a single mom um, who helped her at seven years old manage her eviction notices. And I would put different piles of bills together for her. This is a final shutoff notice, mom. This is a regular bill, mom. Don't forget to pay our rent, mom. And um, I had vowed that I would find an equal partner in life. And also, I'm a Harvard-trained mediator. I'm actually literally trained to use my voice and communicate. Wow. So the way I thought about it was, if I'm trained in communication, and I'm a, I'm a product of a single parent, um, where things were hard for us as a child, and I vowed this wasn't going to happen to me, it's probably happening to other women. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me on this eight-year quest to write Fair Play and to um, you know bring that this idea that you know women do not have to be the she fault. Um, for two thirds or more of the domestic and childcare work, um, regardless of whether they work outside the home. Mm. Well, I'm glad you got that blueberries text. I know it must have felt like the end of the world in the moment, but what you were able to create out of it, namely your book, Fair Play, has really opened my eyes to the fact that I'm not alone and feeling like wow, I'm juggling a lot right now. And I wish I could have a conversation with my husband about how to balance things a little bit more fairly. But you brought up a good point. So you are trained in mediation. Yes. You are literally trained to be having these conversations and to to guide people through resolving conflicts. Yes. (laughs) What do you think happens when it when it turns into like the domestic realm why is it that we mainly as women tend to find it difficult to have these conversations with our partners it's amazing Marissa. it was prevalent um after i got that blueberries text part of my um goal was to go out in the world and figure out what the frick was happening to me <laughs> um and Sorry for anybody who has kids in the car. I sometimes go explicit in the podcast. Um, but the, you know, it turns out, as I said, this this two-thirds or more that falls on women, we are not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has a name. You know, it's called invisible work. It's called the second shift. It's called mental load. It's called emotional labor. Um, and women have been talking about this for a past hundred years. Um, but what I didn't know was what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And so my favorite sociologist, um, you know, from, from college, you know, used to say private lives, public issues. Hmm. And so I think the first step is to social change. And I talk to a lot of social change professors about this, including my mother, who's a social worker and a professor of social change, is you go from pre-consciousness to consciousness to the fight for solutions. Yes. And so many women are in pre-consciousness. And I think when we think it's our own problem and we say things to ourselves, well, my husband's better than the guy next door, or at least he, you know, buys the blueberries, you know, Mm -hmm. I think this idea that we can't ask for fairness. Mm. So that is a really big um, problem. And I will say that um, a lot of women, so after reading all those articles, I went out and I interviewed 500 men and women that mirrored the U.S. census. Um, that's what took me so long, why it took sort of seven years to write this book. Um, but when I went out there, a very common thing was women saying to me, I cannot have a conversation with my opposite sex partner mm-hmm. um, in those situations. I also have a same sex partner data, but not my opposite sex partner because it's too triggering. And I would say, okay. And I'd write that down. And then, so one woman says that to me, I can't, I can't bring it up. But then Marissa, I find out that uh, she tells me unironically 20 minutes later that the last time her husband forgot to put 
uh, the laundry and the dryer, she dumped the wet clothes on his pillow. (laughs) (laughs) I had another woman say to me, she doesn't communicate about domestic life. And then I found out she has an Instagram account called the shit my husband doesn't pick up. (laughs) And she takes pictures of everything that's on the floor and she publicly shames him on Instagram. Oh my gosh. What I want to say to all your listeners out there, and I say this a lot as a mediator, um, because that's my day job. I work with highly complex families that look like the HBO show Succession. Um, So your listeners should feel bad for me. And there are difficult family situations. But what I say is that we are already communicating. We are already communicating about domestic life. I can go on your Nest Cam and I'll circle five times you've communicated about domestic (laughs) life today. Well, that, especially now that we're home and we're quarantined. Yes. Without having to hear your voice. Because if we're already communicating in all these passive aggressive ways, or if we're not, then we get sick or we get resentful. And 30% of people end up divorcing over these issues. Wow. So I believe I'm a pro marriage person as a pr- product of divorce. I want people to stay together. I want people to communicate. So once I started to say to women, this is not a conversation start. This is a conversation shift. Hmm. Then they were more willing to listen. Wow. Okay. You bring up so many good points. I I can totally see myself like through that Nest camera, <laughs> like recording that I have on my phone, like how I might be communicating without even using my words, you know, through my body language, through my tone of voice, you know, things like this. And so, yeah, I, I can see how even though we might not be using actual words, we're still getting our points across in some kind of way. So in having all of those conversations that you did before writing the book, how were you able to coach people in shifting their method of communication to be more active, to be more centered towards resolving the conflict? It's a great question. And so I'll take you a little bit through my journey to how I got there. Yes, please. Um, so I started like every other mom in the world probably has started in this type of process. When you get resentful, I started to make a list. I thought that was going to be the answer to all my prayers because I kept thinking about the term invisible work. And I thought to myself, wow, if this is truly invisible, then Seth doesn't see what I do in the home. So what if I wrote down every single thing that I do Mm -hmm. that takes me more than two minutes? So I started a giant Excel spreadsheet because I love spreadsheets. And I started to write down every single thing I did, like, you know, taking my kids to the doctor's appointments one hour, making school lunches, you know, 10 minutes, you know, logging on to the school form portal my fucking entire lifetime, you know, like <laughs> all these, these things I was doing. Um, and then I sort of sent it out into the world. And that's when it went viral, not viral, like Twitter viral, but viral amongst communities of women who are really interested in contributing to this spreadsheet that I ultimately named the shit I do spreadsheet. And I started getting texts from women. I didn't even know, Marissa, like, uh, you know, I got your spreadsheet, your Excel sheet from my friend. Um, I didn't see Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales on here, you know, at five hours. Um, Another woman texted me. Um, don't forget Elf on the Shelf, uh-huh. you know, one hour times 20 nights. Um, another woman said, you know, add two minutes for sunscreen, you know, two minutes for the application of sunscreen, but 30 minutes for the chase. Uh-huh. And so it was this really fun, cathartic experience where there was humor and excitement. 
And I was so happy with this sort of nine months of my life um, of, you know, creating the Should I Do spreadsheet. And it ultimately became, like I said, 98 tabs. Oh, wow. um, Over a thousand items of invisible work. And me, right, the communicator, the one who I told you is trained to communicate. Right. I finally got the courage to send it to Seth, my husband, um, one day after I spent all these months compiling the spreadsheet. I sent him the 19 million megabyte spreadsheet with just the subject line, can't wait to discuss. How did that go over? And as you can imagine, <laughs> right? You can remember that in the book, right? As you can imagine, right? I just get, uh, for those of you who have not read Fair Play yet, um, what I write back is, right, I just, I don't even get the courtesy of the three monkey trio. I don't get see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. I just get the sad monkey that's covering its eyes. <laughs> One emoji of all that hard work. But I think the beauty of that day of that email communication was this idea that lists alone don't work. Mm. And in the back of my mind, I knew that. I know women have been making lists for a hundred years, but I think I had to see it myself. Mm -hmm. And that's when I thought, okay, I can resign myself to doing it all for the rest of our marriage and still stay resentful and a more gray version of myself um, and stay a role and be the fulfiller of my husband's blueberry smoothie needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Or I can, you know, become my own client and get to work. And so that's when I started to put into place a system. So what I do for my clients is it's not just about communicating better. Mm -hmm. It's about a system. And the beauty of systems are that, especially when there's games in them, like card games, which is Fair Play has a card game associated with it. Um, this more metaphorical card game of a hundred cards, a hundred cards that represent everything you do for your home and family. The beauty of a gamification of a system is that as a mediator, we say creates boundaries around a conversation. So Maris, in you know, when you're talking about garbage in the fair play game, you're talking about, you know, who takes it out and the bag going back in, it doesn't become, well, your dad and your mom suck because they did everything for you. So you never will take out the garbage for me. Right. And that's also often how a lot of conversations happen, right? They go outside of the boundaries. And that's why, back to this a long-winded way to say, that's why ultimately I think people are afraid of these conversations. Because they don't stay emotionless. They don't stay about the task at hand. They ultimately become about a rejection of who you are or of what you are you're asking for. And it becomes ultimately a trust issue. Mm-hmm. And as you had more and more of these conversations and you were seeing that this pattern of, you know, nonverbal communication or communication that is going outside of the boundaries, how did you see that impact the families that you are working with? Yeah. I mean, in my day job, um, I would start with a family um, that needs to, you know, bring, um, you know, new advisors on or they're moving, you know, succession to the next generation. Um, of, you know, these multi-million dollar companies or family businesses or family foundations. Mm-hmm. And I would start a meeting and every time um, my client's son would talk, my client would storm out of the room. Hmm. Um, I would be in a meeting of three, you know, three generations of family members. A grandchild would try to insert their opinion. Matriarch would just start rolling their eyes. Um, so, or check their phone, right? People were communicating in many ways that were not direct communication. So what do you do? What do I do? Well, when you design systems that allow for, um, clarity, Mm -hmm. 
explicitly define expectations, knowing your role of when you speak, when you don't speak, why you're there. That's how you start changing dynamics in any relationship or any system. And so when I started to realize that working with organizations was the same as the home, because our home is just an organization. True. And actually, our home should be our most important organization. So true. That we treat with some respect and some rigor. And we don't just figure things out on the fly. Who's putting, why is there a sponge in the sink? Where, who's taking out the garbage? Who was doing school with the kids today? I mean, just the crazy amount of decision fatigue we get on a day-to-day basis because we don't systematize this domestic work. I realized that there is a real opportunity here to make real change. And that's ultimately what fair play is. It's a card game, but there's real rules. And I, in the second half of the book, I walk you through, um, and it's not just a silly card game, it's boundaries right? to have important conversations and important, hard conversations. As we said, they don't get had, mm-hmm. but if you can make them fun when emotion is low and cognition is high, it can change everything. And it changed everything in my marriage. And it's changing things. And over 10,000 people are, have reported back to us about their playing and, wow. and how it's changing their lives. It's crazy. And the book is, just only came out five months ago. Wow. Um, been pretty amazing to see the response of how people are starting to adopt the system. Yeah, I was so excited. So I knew about the book and I had been, you know, researching terms like you mentioned, mental load, the second shift, emotional labor and invisible work, all of those things were kind of floating around in my mind. And, you know, it's that's it's one thing to be aware of it. Like you said, that that awareness stage is important. But then I quickly moved into, so what do I need to do about this? Like, how can I actually change this and and turn things around within my own marriage so that we're feeling like we're partners, you know, that we're taking this on together? So I would love for you to share a little bit more about the rules of fair play, because when I was reading about them in the book, I it was like a light bulb moment. Like, why didn't I think about this? These rules make so much sense. And I'm excited to hear that people who have been playing already are seeing so much change and so much growth within their relationships. Yes. Thank you. Um, And like I say, everything about fair play is a practice. I wish I love junk food. It's all I eat. I wish I could eat healthy one day and it would keep my heart, you know, cholesterol free for the rest of my (laughs) life. I wish I could meditate once and be calm for the rest of my life, but it just doesn't work that way. Everything good in life is a practice. And so fair play becomes a practice about how to have conversations. And I think that's really the beauty Mm -hmm. of it. But it does require, why can't this just be a card game that sits next to Cards Against Humanity? Well, Marissa, it's because, and why am I on this podcast, right? (laughs) It's because um, consciousness raising comes first, unfortunately, especially for women. And- there were so many women um, that were saying things to me that ended up having to be in the first half of this book. And I had some anger (laughs) in the first half of the book. Um, I had one man DM me on Instagram and he said, thank you. Um, I'm willing to accept the female anger in the first part of your book because the solution has been so helpful for me and my partner. Wow. And so I I DM'd him back and I said, thank you for accepting female anger. Um, But what was happening in interview after interview, as I said, I'd went out into the world and I interviewed now way over 500, but then, you know, 500 men and women um, that had that identify, self-identified all the way, you know, from working poor up to people who identified as billionaires, my, my clients. Mm-hmm. There was this idea amongst women um, and men in society that 
men's time is finite, as I say in fair play, like like a diamond. Um, and women's time is infinite, like sand. Hmm. And that is such a powerful um, finding, especially for women, um, because what it meant was that women were were devaluing their own time as well. Um, women were were the worst purveyors of what I call these toxic time messages about why we should guard men's time over their own time. And I had women all over the country saying things to me like, of course, I pick up the extra slack, you know, at home because my husband makes more money than me. Well, that's a terrible argument because, you know, even the same job, women make less money. And our care professions, as we're seeing now in a, ter- in a really horrible pandemic time, right? Teachers, um, nurses, right? They, we get paid less because they're w- women's jobs. Hmm. Um, I had other women say to me, well, um, I'm just wired differently. You know, I'm a much better multitasker. My husband's so much better at focusing on one task at a time. You know, women are just wired um, better for care and we're just wired differently for multitasking. And so Marissa, I had to go to the top neuroscientists <laughs> and ask them, right? You know, are women better multitaskers? Are we better? Are, we, are our brains wired differently than men's? And the only other day I cried other than the blueberries day in this process, like actually cried mm-hmm. was um, sitting with a neuroscientist who was an old white man um, just a try- type of patriarchal man I was trying to get at with the book, with the book. Um, an old white man, when I asked him that question, are women better multitaskers and, you know, especially for care and caretaking, um, he just looked at me and said, wow, um, imagine Eve, we could convince half the population that they're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for the other half of the population. Mm. So I started crying in his office. He probably thought I was crazy, but I just, I had just so much rage and sadness that day um, for all the women I heard using that, that excuse that has no basis in science. And then other women were saying things to me like, well, in the time it takes me to tell my, my partner what to do, I should just do it myself. Mm-hmm. I went to the top behavioral economists in this country and they said, that's a terrible argument. Of course you want to teach someone else how to wipe the asses and do the dishes or do the homeschooling, which is happening to a lot of us now. Yes. Because otherwise you're going to be doing it forever and expense of your time. Um, even women and men in the same job, Marissa, two shipping supervisors, two colorectal surgeons. I still had women saying to me, well, of course I do domestic work because, you know, my husband just needs a lot more time to wind down and I'm, I can find the time. But unless we're Albert Einstein and we know how to fuck with the space-time continuum, there's just no way to find more time. It's just that there, we have a different societal expectation over how women are supposed to use their time. Right. And that was, that was the thing, the most important thing I felt like I had to write about and debunk before we can actually move to a solution. That we have, as women, have to believe to our core, which we've never been taught, that our time is equally valuable as a man's time. And that we deserve equal choice over how we spend our precious 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, I'm guilty of using almost all of those time-based responses. And I didn't realize it until I got to the point personally where, you know, I was working full time when my son Milo was first born and I was coming home, cooking the meal, cleaning it all up, making sure like the house was spotless, doing the laundry. and. Eventually, I just had this moment where literally my mom pulled me aside and said, Maris, I'm really worried about you. You're doing way too much right now. Wow. 
what can we do to help? Please like tell us, use your voice, speak up and share what is it that you need right now because you're taking this all on yourself and you don't have to. And it wasn't until I had that wake up call moment with my mom that I realized that I had become the she fault parent like you speak about in your book or you write about in your book. And I I think it just, it does have a lot to do with societal expectations and you know, you're the mom. So of course you're the the one who's most suited to the baby. So you might as well just do all of the baby things. And well, of course you're the better cook because you're a woman. So you might as well. And just all of these ideas just kind of pigeonholed me into being the one who took on the majority of these household and family tasks in addition to a full-time job. And I was left feeling very depleted at the end. Well, thank God you're doing your podcast now and you get to share that story with other women. Because I think that's step number one is to normalize that this is, again, this is not a private private life. This is a public mm-hmm. issue. And we can still love the men in our lives. I, I always say I could still be a feminist who wants to get lip injections, right? We can still love the men in our lives and um, still feel like we want something to change. Yeah. And that's the thing. I love Seth. And, and he is a different human being now. And so I tell, I will tell all your listeners out there, if Seth can change, anybody can change (laughs) because Mm. he's a good guy. Um, but a lot of these toxic time messages were in his head as well. Um, you know, time is money and I make your life and you know, a lot, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. But when I was able to sit down with him after, after sending him that crazy, should I do spreadsheet and it not working? When Marissa, I was finally able to sit down with Seth back to communicating, right? When emotion was low and cognition was high, probably over some sort of alcohol or dessert or fast food that I love, um, was I was able to sit down with him and say, look, I love you. I love our family. I'm depleted. Like you said, Um, Mm -hmm. I am not who I used to be. I am losing my identity. And a lot of it is because I feel like um, every second of my day is expected to be in service of the household or or childcare if I'm not working, Mm -hmm. even the last 10, 12 minutes of my day. Whereas I feel like, um, yes, you work hard too, but you get three, four hours a night um, to check sports center, um, to work out, to, you know, follow up on PowerPoints, to get a home cooked meal, um, to have clean underwear. and. I feel like my time is, is worthless compared to yours. Hmm. And Seth and I both got teary and he said, I don't want you to feel in our relationship like your time is worthless. And it opened up a dialogue. And then over time, we both agreed that our time is diamond. Hmm. And, um, and that, you know, an hour holding our child's hand in the pediatrician's office is just as valuable as an hour in the boardroom. But that took a really long time for us to get there over this past seven years. And I was able to write about our journey. And because, again, Seth is the kind of man who's very private, but he felt like the system worked so well for us. And he was realizing it was working for others as I tested it over the past three years. He said to me one day, like, I'm ready for you to tell our story. Wow. Yay. And I'm so glad that you have told your story and you're you're telling it right now. But you bring up a good point. So going back to the toxic time messages and just the ideas that we have about where and what a woman should be doing with her time. I'm very interested in your decision to name your book 
fair play and not equal play. Can you tell yes. me a little bit more? <laughs> good, good no, no one's asked me that yet, except for one person a long time ago. Um, it's a great question. You're a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. It, actually, it's a great, great question because, um, and it's probably why um, this is a funny anecdote, but um, when I first started writing uh, this book, which I didn't have a title for at the time, um, I wrote a post-it note to myself, Maris, that said, go where the white men are. Uh, and so... Ironically, that's where my first op-ed for this book came out was the Wall Street Journal, where a lot of the white men are. What they um, responded to was this idea that I don't believe in 50-50. I don't believe in equality in the home. I believe in equal time, that we get equal time choice. But this idea of equality in the home, I actually believe has held us back for 100 years after reading all the scholarship. And I think it's because as a mediator, I look at expectations, I look at disappointment, I look at how people communicate. Mm -hmm. And when you have this uh, ephemeral expectation of 50-50, and then you don't get it, and you have no idea how to measure that, um, things can start falling apart. There's a lot of resentment. Um, So what I tried to do is move away from equal, this idea of 50-50, which is very much the way people talk about the home, and move it to ownership. Mm. And that's really how businesses do their job. Um, you know, if you and I were business partners, Marissa, I wouldn't say to you, like, we need equal duties. Right. Um, no, if I was the COO of your company, you'd say, okay, you have the COO duties and I have the CEO duties and we'll both work until we complete our hours. But, you know, Marissa, you left at six and I left at eight. No, I mean, we're doing our work, right? It all evens out. Right. This idea of an organizational management, what we call the DRI, the directly responsible individual where you give somebody, as Netflix calls, context, not control to do their job, where someone does it from start to finish, or at least is is thinking about the conception, the planning, and the overseeing of the execution. Mm -hmm. That ownership model in the business world is what what I wanted people to use in the home. And once I started seeing that that was working for women and men, because the number one thing men said they hated about home life was nagging. Mm -hmm. The number one thing women said they hated about home life was the holding the mental load till they were depleted. Right. And so the only thing that can change that is when women get the shit out of their head and men stop feeling nagged. And the way you do that is through ownership. And that's why fair play is all about holding a card. When you're holding a fair play card, like garbage or extracurricular sports for your kids or homework, you own the project. You don't say, well, you didn't remind me. Um, what am I supposed to do here? You're not executing on someone else's vision. You are the project manager from conception planning to execution of that card. And so that's why the book is called Fair Play, because at the end of the day, the science shows perceived fairness is more important than actual fairness. Because what the hell does that even mean? <laughs> All I care about, Marissa, is that you feel perceived fairness in your home. And that doesn't often come with 50-50. Wow. Such a good point. Yes. I think that's a really huge point of tension in a lot of relationships is you're not doing your share. You know, like I'm doing this much and you should be doing at least as much as I am, or at least perhaps I'm just tapping into the conversations I have with my own husband. No, no, no. Everything, I promise you that everybody's having those everywhere, every economic status, every ethnicity, we all are having those conversations. That's so interesting. I mean, I was really blown away by motherhood because I was so enmeshed in this corporate ladder, corporate like structure. I really liked the idea of having 
a job description and then knowing where I could go to find resources and how I could find opportunities to advance and things like that. Everything's very spelled out. There is a very set structure and a well-known context around business and organizations and, and, you know, just work life. But when it comes to home life, I, and when I started staying at home full-time myself, I just felt like I fell apart. You know, like I didn't really know how to translate what I was doing in the office and what I was excelling at, quite frankly, in the office to excelling at the things that I was doing at home. I just felt like there was such a disconnect. So this idea of making sure there is a structure in place in the home as well resonates so deeply with me. Thank you. And what I, and I think it's beautiful you say that because um, I want to say this to stay-at-home moms, right? This is, as women, we are not a role. Um, you'll be a stay-at-home mom maybe for the next five years and then you may enter the workforce again. Um, right. There was a time I was a stay-at-home mom and then I was what I call an accidental traditionalist where I started my own business. And um, because I had, to, I was, I felt, um, you know, smashed out of the corporate workforce because of their lack of flexibility. Um, mm-hmm. And it's on me toxic time messages that because I made less because I chose philanthropy and my husband chose private equity. It was my job to stay home um, or to, to make a more flexible job. So we, we we all weave in and out of these different roles. But I think it's really important as we weave in and out of them that we recognize that it's never okay for one person to hold all the domestic load. Mm-hmm. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom, a working mom, yes, your fare as a stay-at-home mom may look different than if you went back to work, that your fare would look different then potentially, but not one person can hold all the cards because A, it's not fair to your spouse, whether it's an opposite sex spouse or a same sex spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not fair to them because actually my husband says, you know, the more he did in the home, the better human being he became, <laughs> the better worker he became, the better boss he became. Um, because it's actually a, a plus for men to own tasks in the home. That's number one. But number two, because it's unpaid labor, it's the hardest labor there is. And there's a lot of meaning in it, but there's not always a lot of happiness in it. And that correlates more in the workplace than it does, you know, in, with the ho- unpaid domestic labor. And caretaking is really freaking hard. Really? <laughs> and I don't want women out there to be, you know, women are diagnosed with twice as many anxiety disorders as men. Um, so many women in my data set and many stay-at-home moms were reporting to me insomnia and Hashimoto's disease mm. because they felt like they had to hold all this load um, and their job never turns off. And that's just not okay. Not okay for any of us as we weave in and out of all these different times in our lives. Um, and so Seth and I started with one card. I held all of the fair play cards in our deck, which was about 85 cards. Oh, wow. When we started this game. Um, and he held fun and playing. That was one card, fun and playing. And he held money manager. Those were his two cards. Okay. And money manager is a very patriarchal card. So I don't want any man holding that card. I want all the women holding that card. But that's where we started. And now I'm at a place um, where I had to go on my book tour and my husband's holding all of the cards. Yeah. Um, and still working full time while I had to be on the road. It doesn't mean that will be that way forever. But you start, you start with where you are. A big fundamental rule about fair play, which you said before, um, you wanted to know the rules. Well, number one rule is all time is created equal, as we've gone into. Mm-hmm. The other really important rule is to start where you are. Start with one card. Seth and I started with garbage. I said to him, I don't want to be reminding you to take out the garbage. 
put the damn fucking liner back in the bag, get the trash bins out before they, before, um, I didn't say it like that because that would not be my communication new techniques, but we sat down, you know, and I said to him, I want to do ownership. I want to practice what I do in my organizational management at home. He totally loved this idea of ownership, this idea of CPE, conception, planning, execution. He does it at work. He totally got that garbage would mean putting the bag back in and taking the bins out. Um, Marissa, what was happening to me though, and this will get to our last rule of fair play is what was happening to me was that I was still his garbage shadow. Mm. So I was following him around the kitchen and staring at the garbage and seeing if he was really going to take it out. And my husband's tall, Seth is tall. So I would open the door under the sink and hope he'd fall over the open door. And I was like, oh, if you fell and and hit your knee, maybe you'll see there's a garbage liner under there. Um, Really passive aggressive stuff. And that's when I realized that I had to sit down with him and apologize and say, I appreciate you taking garbage and running to work with me in this new system that I'm creating for our home, but I'm your garbage shadow and you notice it. And um, I want to apologize. And when I was able to step back, Marissa, and take the last rule of fair play, which is talk about your why, start with your why, your values together. Mm-hmm. I asked all these different people to tell me their wedding vows and how do they live them on a daily basis. Everybody looks at me like I'm insane. They have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, I'm asking your listeners to take a new vow over garbage. And that's the last rule. The last rule is to start with your why. You want to communicate in a better way? Well, you do it when emotion is low, cognition is high, or like when you're not around your kids. Check in every week with that practice. But when you're there, you start with your why. And so when I sat down with Seth and I said to him, here's why I'm your garbage shadow. I came from a single mom household. You know, you've seen my apartment where I grew up. Um, But Seth, what you don't know about me is that I didn't have a garbage can growing up. And my mother just had a takeout bag that would sit on a knob and every day it would spill out onto the floor. And we had a huge water bug and cockroach problem. And it was embarrassing when friends came over and um, I couldn't get water at night because I was scared to go into the into the kitchen as a child. And even our Rice Krispies were filled with meal bugs. Um, my mom used to call them Cocoa Krispies, but I knew it was really bugs. Mm. And every time I see even a banana peel like leaking out over the trash bin, um, I start to feel like I'm seven again. Mm-hmm. Like I'm a latchkey kid and my mom is not home for me. And that's what... I don't want to be that again. I don't want to be that child again. And that's why I think I'm so triggered by garbage. Hmm. And then Seth was able to say to me, Maris, well, I grew up with a housekeeper and I slept on pizza boxes in my fraternity. Like, I don't really give a shit about garbage. Mm-hmm. So what happens? What happens if you're so divergent over something that has to get done every single day? Well, that's when the 30% of people start divorcing over domestic life or our resentometers go up to 10. Right. It happens so insidiously and slowly over time. And that to me is the real midlife crisis. Mm. But when you can start with your why and say, wow, we're really divergent over how we think about garbage. So fair play in that rule is about finding your minimum standard of care. What is reasonable to your household? And Seth and I finally said to each other, it's reasonable for garbage to go out once a day. Yeah. According to Eve, garbage would go out every hour, but according to Seth, <laughs> once a day. Once a day at night, I'll I'll put it in my calendar like a work appointment, garbage will get out. And that's what started happening. Marissa, it was like a miracle. It was like Jesus walking on water. 
It was the first time in my life I didn't have to remind Seth to do something. He owned it. Wow. And he owned it well. And from there, we moved on to extracurricular sports, where he understood that it wasn't just showing up to the Little League field, but it was getting the birth certificate and registering them online and arranging for carpools and pulling their friends about what sports they want to play and ordering equipment on Amazon. Once Seth understood that ownership and what our minimum standard of care was, which was sunscreen and a helmet, basically, um, things started to change. And it was, like I said, miraculous. I mean, it's just amazing what having honest conversation can do for our lives. You know, the fact that you sat down and shared with your husband what your why was, because oftentimes the things that seem to to trigger us, it, it goes deeper than the actual action or inaction that we're experiencing in our lives. You know, there's, there's, there tends to be something underneath that. And so just creating the space to have honest conversations in your marriage, in your relationship, I can see how transformational that can be for years to come. It is. And then if, and you do it with your kids too. Right, right. When I start with my why now, when I use the fair play methods with my kids, right? I don't just say like, clean up your room. Um, I sat them down and I said, look, I want to show you the studies of what a tidy room does to a kid's brain. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of studies that show correlations. And this, you know, I have a seven-year-old, you know, an eight-year-old now, sorry, and an 11-year-old and a three-year-old. Right. These are, they're not old kids, you know, they're young, but they understand what I mean when I say tidy equals better at homework, tidy equals better at sports. It's a part of the brain that gets calmed down at night. When you get better sleep, you're going to grow faster. And I started with my why for my kids for why we were doing certain chores or why I was enforcing certain discipline um, about screens, looking at why attention spans get, you know, messed up when you have too much screens and why I believe right. that attention spans important for my kids. But if, if no one even reads the book or plays the game, if they can take away from this podcast that you communicate when emotion is low and cognition is high, not feedback in the moment, which a lot of women and my data set love to give the feedback in the moment, you hold your tongue for that weekly practice or bi-weekly practice or every, whatever you want to check in. Seth and I check in once a, a week on Fridays. Um, now that this crazy world has changed for us, um, yeah. I were checking in every night, every single night. Um, and we are sitting down when emotion is is low, cognition is high, and we're starting with our why. We're starting with our why. And we had to do that with homeschool, right? Because we're now homeschooling our kids because they're out of school. And what do we want them to get out of it? You know, is this a vacation for them? Do we actually want them to stay up to date in their school? Um, halfway, meet us them halfway. They're not going to be as instructed as well as they were in school. Do we want them to get for their reading to stay up? Do we want them to get extra Khan Academy videos um, on math? Um, you know, you start with your why, um, and then good things happen. Yeah. And speaking to that, of course, at the time of this recording, the health situation is very interesting and it's in flux at all times, it seems like. But I think there's a larger lesson, a larger lesson that can be expanded upon, like even in times beyond a public health concern like this. So I'm curious about what your number one tip would be for spouses for um for a couple as they navigate fair play when things 
are changing abruptly, like perhaps schedules are shifting or, you know, day-to-day life is, is going to be upended in a way that um, wasn't foreseen? My number one advice is to find a time, whether it's every day, every week, to check in with each other and treat the home with some respect and rigor. Mm. You will not figure this stuff out. Um, you will not. It will lead to stress and resentment and anger. Find the time. You don't think you have the 20 minutes um, a week to check in with your partner? Um, hand me over the internet. You know, Hand me your, sc- your screen time. I'll, I'll look at your screen time app. I promise you, you've been on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Snapchat, Pinterest, longer than that. Yeah. Spend the 20 minutes a week investing in your marriage um, or biweekly or every Mm -hmm. day now because things are changing so much. Spend the time to invest in your marriage. Prioritize it like an episode of The Bachelor. (laughs) Put it in your calendar like a work appointment. And even if you have nothing to say, you just look at each other and say, I just heard this podcast and this woman just (laughs) wants us to check in. Um, I have no idea what to say, um, yeah. but I just want to say, how are you doing? Yeah. Come on. How's our home moving right now? How do we feel about our kids? Um, how are you doing? You know? And so I think that's, you can start with that. Start with just those very, very just basic questions. Like you would ask a friend, um, and or not, or play the full game Buy fair play, you know, read it. You can get on audible wherever. And, or, and then, um, any of your listeners who want the actual physical cards, we have prototypes. Okay. Otherwise, you can download them at fairplaylife.com. But if they want the prototypes, um, I've, I have a lot of them. Um, and I, I'm not doing, I can't do in-person speaking engagements right now. So where we would have given them out, I'm happy to give them to your listeners. Um, yeah. Or just play, play. Start, start the consciousness conversations. And don't just play by saying, you do this, you do that. Follow the fair play system, which is starting with building your deck together about what matters to your family and what is your why. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Eve, so much for sharing all of this insight with me and the listeners. I've learned so much in just the short time that we've been chatting together and I really enjoyed your book. I think you did such an excellent job of compiling all your research together and giving anecdotal advice and examples and then you make it fun with this card game. So I'm really looking forward to these prototypes and, yeah. and maybe one day we will be able to go to Target and buy it next to Cards Against Humanity one day. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> but for now, you're going to have to just disinfect an Amazon box <laughs> with gloves. Yeah. Um, I'd be happy, like I said, to send any. So um, if any of your listeners uh, wants to reach out to you or to me at info at evrodsky.com, I'm happy to get them um, the card. Thank you. And so where can the listeners stay in touch with all that you are up to? Follow at Fair Play Life um, or my personal Instagram, which is Eve Rodsky. But Fair Play Life has, um, you know, a lot of fun, humorous ways to, uh, to you know, to start these conversations. And um, fairplaylife.com, the website has a lot of tools for um, the partnerships and relationships. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eve. So excited to to have this conversation. And that's it for this episode of Young Honest Mother, the podcast, which means it's time for you to join the conversation. Share your thoughts on social media and tag me at Young Honest Mother. And then pass this episode along to friends and family who need to know that they're not alone on this journey either. Until next time, I'm your host, Maurice Young.